Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Complete Center's Guide. My name is Tyler Fowler. With me, as always, Noah J. Chalaya. What is going on, brother? Hey, man. How's it going? Good, man. Good. So, I just want to take a second to apologize to everybody. Last week and the week uh, previous, we kind of ran into some technical difficulties, but hopefully we've got that fixed now, and we're back to do weekly and possibly even more shows throughout the week. So that's exciting news uh, that we've got everything kind of rolling now going. And today we actually have a very, very special guest, uh, Chris Date. He is a well-known evangelical Christian author, editor, blogger, podcaster, debater, and speaker representing a global movement known as Rethinking Hell. He specializes in the areas of hell and conditional immortality. As an expert on these topics, Chris has been interviewed in such secular media outlets as New York Times, National Geographic, and NPR. He has debated no less than the president of the, or of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Albert Moeller, and has been interviewed for the popular One Minute Apologist video series. Chris helped to frame the statement on evangelical conditionalism as he is passionate about making the case for conditionalism while fostering unity among evangelical Christians on the controversial yet very important topic. In a few short years, Chris has edited and co-authored two books in this area and published three articles in peer-reviewed academic journals, Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism, A Consuming Passion, Essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward Fudge, Dismissive of Hell, Fearful of Death, Conditional Immortality, and the Apologetic Challenge, The Hermeneutics of Conditionalism, A Defense of the Imperative Method of Edward Fudge, and The the Righteous for the Unrighteous, Conditional Immortality, and the Substitutionary Death of Jesus. Outspokenly Reformed, he has defended Calvinism in uh, conversation and debate with non-popular or popular non-Calvinist and friend Dr. Leighton Flowers, and in his Two Views debate books, does God predetermine the eternal destiny of every individual human being? A debate. Chris has also defended the Trinity and deity of Christ against Unitarian Del, Dr. Del Tuggy in his in Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? A debate. Chris Date, what an introduction, man! How how you doing, brother? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so for those who are listening who might not have seen, we actually have a part one, if you could call it that, um, where I interviewed Chris on on Facebook Live. Um, it's over. It's actually posted either on my page or, uh, Chris, I think you shared it. And then it's also at the Complete Sinner's Guide Facebook page. So if you guys want to go check that out, please feel free. Um, we're going to be kind of going into the same stuff a little bit. I've got some uh, church fathers that I want to look at. I've got some Bible verses that I really, really want to uh, dig into. Um, but Chris, just for those who may not know, what is conditional immortality and what exactly, what's different about you per se? Well, uh, I could, I, I don't know where to begin or end when it comes to what's different about me, uh, <laughs> but when it comes to what conditional immortality is, it, it helps, it helps to first understand what the doctrine of eternal torment in hell really is. Because sometimes we, um, we tend to think that it's where people go when they die, their bodies go into the ground, their disembodied soul goes into torment in hell, and then it remains there for eternity. But historically, the the doctrine of eternal torment has not been one of disembodied souls suffering forever. It's a place that begins after the dead are raised from the dead. So their souls are reunited with their resurrection bodies. And, uh, uh, and historically, you know, we conditionalists agree with the doctrine of eternal torment in, in, uh, or people who advocate it in the sense that we agree that at the moment of resurrection, the saved will be made immortal um, and they will live bodily forever in the new heavens, new earth with, um, you know, in the presence of God and in the community of his people. But it's, a, but it's when it comes to the resurrected lost that we part ways with that traditional view. Because the traditional view of eternal torment says that when the wicked are raised from the dead, when the unsaved or lost are brought back to life, their bodies will be made immortal um, every bit as much as their souls are alleged to be immortal. And so hell, in this traditional doctrine of eternal torment, is a place where living, breathing immortals 
are being tormented in body and soul for all eternity. So you might say that the doctrine of eternal torment, and this is true also of universalism, um, is a view of unconditional immortality. Immortality is given to all humankind um, on the resurrection day. By contrast, conditional immortality says that immortality isn't universal. It's not unconditional. Immortality is only going to be granted to those people who meet the condition of being saved. Um, so the saved will be made immortal and live forever with God. But the lost will remain mortal when they are raised from the dead, and their punishment will literally be dying a second time, um, and they will never live or experience anything ever again. Right. I know that the Bible gives um, s certain like analogies, or, or really pictures, all right? Because we know the Jews, they spoke in pictures. And we see, like John the Baptist and Jesus even, that, you know, making distinctions between, between saved and lost, um, between chaff, right, and, and wheat. And we see what happens to the chaff whenever it gets thrown into the fire. Well, it burns up, it turns to ashes. It is no more. And I think that these pictures, I, I really do think that there's a part, again, guys, I am on the fence whenever it comes to conditional immortality or eternal conscious torment right but, I, I'm still Tyler, let's, go ahead, go ahead. Well, i just want to back up for a second can you yeah, yeah. Uh, can you give a can you give an overview of, of what you believe happens when people die or the the alternative perspective i guess and what if any scripture you have that supports that idea you know to be honest i haven't i mean this is not my specialty okay i've I'm more, much more into, or not into, but soteriology, so I haven't really focused the time, you know, that I have into soteriology, into eschatology. I know it's a bad thing. I should do that. And really, that's part of why I've got Chris on the show, um, for, for one view of it. Um, but from what I've heard is that, granted, whenever, whenever the dead are raised, you have two resurrections, one for the saved, one for the lost. And I've always known that soul, the, the soul of the individual is immortal, right? It's not until recently that I've actually been doing some philosophy classes and realized that that's actually more of a Platonist idea, that um, everyone's soul is is immortal, and it really doesn't come from the Bible, um, to my knowledge, anyway, on it. Uh, again, I would have to do more reading on, the, on, on it. Um, but Chris, let me ask you, you know more about eternal conscious torment than I do, and you don't hold to it, right? But could you kind of give a, a more in-depth, because I can only do a you know, surface-level um, explanation on it. Um, can you give a little bit of what they believe exactly? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so, and, and, and just to be clear, this isn't something not only that I, this is something I don't believe now, but that hasn't mm -hmm. always been the case. For the first 10 years, almost, of my Christian walk, I believed in, and I, and I became a Christian when I was 20. So from 20 to almost 30 years old, which was 10 years ago, I held to the doctrine of eternal torment and defended it. Um, okay. So yeah, just to make that clear. So, uh, so when we talk about what happens in hell, we're not talking about what happens when you die, um, no matter which side of the debate we're on. Um, there are people on all sides of the debate who think that when a person dies, their disembodied soul remains conscious in, in, in and is awaiting resurrection in Hades or Abraham's bosom or, you know, one of these ways of describing the intermediate state. Um, what, what The topic of hell has to do with what happens when those disembodied people are resurrected from the dead one day, um, the saved to go into the presence of God forever, the lost to be judged and suffer their everlasting punishment. Um, so the, so according to the traditional view, the doctrine of eternal torment, which um, the earliest Christians appear to have taught this in the latter half of the second century AD, so we're talking um, Athenagoras and Tatian in the uh, range from 150 AD to 200. Prior to that point, people like Irenaeus of Lyon, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and others taught my view, um, but we can get into that later in the in the course of the discussion. But what the what the doctrine has taught since the time of Athenagoras and Tatian um, is that when the resurrected lost are raised from the dead, their disembodied souls are reunited with resurrection bodies, and and, and the typical way that. Uh, believers in eternal torment describe the resurrection bodies of the lost is to say that those bodies have been made fit to suffer eternal punishment. Um, but that's just a euphemism. What they mean is it's been made physically immortal so that it can live forever without dying under the brunt of God's wrath forever. Um, so 
according to this doctrine of eternal torment, the resurrected lost will be made, they'll be brought back to life, their souls will be reunited with their bodies, and they will be made immortal, body and soul, not just soul, and they will live physically forever in a physical hell. Um, the torment there may or may not be physical in nature. You know, so historically, you do have some extremely graphic depictions of physical torture and fire. Um, you go back far enough and you read about people who think that the fires of hell melt the flesh off of the bones of the wicked, but then it regenerates that flesh and it just does that in a vicious cycle forever. Today, it tends to be a little bit more about emotional, psychological, spiritual torment, but it's still an an embodied state um so you know whether you think that the physically immortal wicked go into fire forever to suffer physical pain or whether you think that they're going to sort of be isolated um secluded separated from god and his people in something like an eternal prison sentence either way it's this everlasting physical immortality and physical life in um at the very least emotional torment if not also physical torment forever Right. And see, whenever I think of eternal conscious torment, I kind of think of Dante, right? And Dante's Inferno. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie or not, or just read the poem, but it gives kind of, um, basically what, what reflected people in their life, they kind of get that punishment. It's somehow, you know, um, compatible with their punishment in hell. So like I said, if you guys have ever seen that movie, um, I, that's what I think of whenever I, uh, view it. Noah, what is your view on what happens to the body, the soul after death, uh, after the resurrection? So the I, I've always started by defining hell and working my way backwards, right? I think we all agree that 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 people who are lost, who did not accept the salvation of Jesus are going to wind up in hell. And so then the question becomes, what is hell? And I, I, I mean, my understanding has always been hell is eternal separation from God. And so if somebody makes the choice that they don't wish to be with the Father and the Son in heaven, and they, and they, then, then, they, then the, by their very nature, they, they choose to be eternally separated from God. I don't find anywhere in the Bible, Genesis to Revelations, that suggests that people burn continuously. I also don't find that to be consistent with a, a, a loving, merciful God. I also don't find that to be consistent with uh, the, the, the story in Genesis that says that the penalty for sin is death. If, if a person does not accept salvation, therefore they, do not, they don't take, the, they don't take the, the get-out-of-jail-free card that we've been given, then the penalty for sin is death. They would die. And, 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 so that, and, and when I align all three of those things, that— uh, first of all, God, uh, people will be eternally separated from God. They will. They're eternally dead. They don't come to life ever again. They, uh, I believe that there is, I, I believe that, that people will be consumed by fire. But if you look at the way that, it, that God has cleansed the earth in the past with a flood or when, when God rained down in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, all of those things were, were in event. People suffered. They perished, and then, and then, then it was over. And I, and so I don't really right. understand where the scriptural references or why people believe uh, this idea that there would be a God. And you know, you've seen the depictions, right? The devil's down there with the pitchfork roasting people or whatever. I, I don't find any biblical evidence for that at all. I don't find any scriptural reference. I don't find anything that um, that even suggests that that's what happens to us. And to a certain degree, I think it's important to note that I think a lot of these topics are sometimes not given their, their due diligence, not because they're not important, but because they're irrelevant to us, right? Once we've made the decision that we, we choose to be saved, we choose to accept the, 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 the gift of salvation from Jesus, then the question becomes, how is, that, how is what happens to those who are not saved applicable to my life in any way, shape, or form? And I right. think because of that, it leads us to say, well, there's a limited amount of time that I want to spend on it. But I think it is important because um, I, I think it leads to questions where people say, well, how could a God that loves all his creatures, I couldn't, I couldn't do that to my worst enemy, stick them in a, in a in a chamber in which they would burn for all eternity. I can't imagine a loving God would do that. Doesn't make any sense to me. And I think we have a hard time squaring um, the the in the the definition of love from God with this idea that people eternally burn. Let, let, let me just chime in for a moment and say two real quick things. Um, first of all, I, I want to be careful that we don't 
treat the doctrine of eternal torment as if it necessarily entails this caricature of devils with pitchforks in hell. Um, I know that I know that wasn't your intent, but believers in tradition in the doctrine of eternal torment um, think that the, that Satan and his demons suffer eternal punishment in hell too. It's not a place where the demons are inflicting the punishment; the demons are receiving the punishment every mm. bit as much as the lost human beings. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that we fairly represent the traditional view of hell. The other point that I want to make is just that I I understand some of the sentiments that you just described about feeling like the doctrine of eternal torment is inconsistent with the loving character of God. I understand that. I just want to say I don't share that intuition. Um, I have ever since, I mean, e- e- even before I became convinced of this view and to this day, I still think that the love and justice of God are both consistent with, compatible with certain at least forms of of eternal torment. And so while, you know, I I think I would struggle to be able to reconcile those things in the really traditional, traditional view of people suffering physical torture and fire forever, but the more common contemporary view in which it's more like an everlasting prison sentence, I don't find that to be inconsistent with the loving character uh, and justice of God um, at all. For me, what um, motivates my belief in conditional immortality and its corollary annihilationism is, is the biblical data and the biblical data almost exclusively. There are some theological reasons having to do with the atonement that I find in favor of annihilationism as well. But it's really the biblical data that drives me, not these issues of morality and intuition and and things like that. Yeah, I agree, Chris. And I think that we have to, whenever we get into it, we have to look at what the Bible says about this. So let's kind of transition there now. Um, I want to go to Matthew ten twenty eight, and I'm reading, I'm going to be reading out of two different uh, versions. Uh, I've got the ESV and the NET. Um, so if that varies a little bit different than those are both uh, great translations. They are. I love them. I I love the ESV. I love the NET for study. Um, I think that was one of the uh, Noah. Didn't somebody ask what ver- versions we use? Um, I think it was on the first show, wasn't it? Yep, I think so. Yeah. So ESV and NET right here. Um, so Matthew ten twenty eight says this. It says, "And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy destroy." both soul and body in hell. And now this is Jesus speaking, um, obviously, of some... Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but those, doesn't some other places have, but rather fear uh, the Father who can destroy both soul and body in hell, or is it just him? No, oh, it's just Jesus. This is the only place. Okay. Um, there is a there is a parallel in Luke, but Luke uh, renders Jesus' words a little differently. Okay, okay. So destroy here. I mean, this... I. It seems kind of... You know, point blank, right? The, doesn't this seem, Chris? What 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 do you think here? Destroy. Well, yeah, I mean, I I do think that um that it seems pretty straightforward. It, it sounds pretty clearly like Jesus is saying that both body and soul will be destroyed in Gehenna. But of course, believers in eternal torment are well aware of this verse. It's not like right. this comes as a, as a surprise to them. Sure. And so, what they will typically do is argue that the Greek word translated "destroy" here, the Greek word "apollomy." Um, means something like ruin or waste, you know, because the word is used elsewhere to describe um, oil that is poured out on people's heads and disappears. It's it's used to describe uh, a coin that is lost, uh, um, a sheep that is lost, um, uh, a, a wineskin that bursts. And so sometimes tr- traditionalists, um, and by traditionalist, I just mean somebody who holds to the traditional view. I'm not saying that they do so for traditional reasons. Um, but they, uh, they will say that this is kind of the sense of... Uh, in which bodies and souls are destroyed in Gehenna. They're ruined. They're, they're made unfit. Uh, they're, they're no longer um, made. They're no, no longer suitable to the purpose for which they were designed, which is unity with God and, 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 and with his people. The problem with that line of reasoning though, is that the Greek word translated destroy here is used in a particular, uh, particular form. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here because I don't know how much your audience cares about, you know, Greek linguistics, <laughs> but, but I'll just put it this way, wherever the Greek word apollomy is used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are highly interrelated, they share common sources. Um, whenever the word is used in this way, um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it consistently means something like slay or kill. It's an emphatic way of saying kill. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give you just two examples. In the book of Matthew, in Matthew 2.13, Herod is said to want to kill the baby Jesus, and the word translated kill is apollomy. Obviously, Herod didn't want to ruin or waste the baby Jesus. He wanted to kill him, right? right. And, and the same is true of the Pharisees in Matthew 12.14 who want to kill Jesus. They didn't want to just lose Jesus, 
right? They wanted to slay him. They wanted to kill him. And that's the sense in which um, slay is being, or apollomy is being used here in Matthew 10, 28. And we know what happens when a body is killed. It becomes lifeless, inanimate, inert. It no longer has any sort of functioning. Um, if that happens to the soul also in Gehenna, um, it seems pretty clear what it is that Jesus is trying to say is going to happen. Right. And I mean, what is, in Revelation, it, what do we think of as the second death? I mean, why would those words be described or be used to describe those who suffer in hell? You know, what I mean, a, a, as death, we know death as one way. And where I'm going with this is that I believe that the entire Bible is God's revelation, but he has revealed things to us in ways that we can understand it. Right. And so how would we think of as death? Well, that person is gone. They cease to exist in, in some sense. Uh, Noah, do you got any um, reply on that or? No, I, I, I don't. Okay. Well, I, well, I, I, I like what, go ahead. I'll, I'll riff on that mention of second death briefly, just because I want yeah, yeah. to try and represent the doctrine of eternal torment as best as it can be represented. I think what they would say is that it's it, it, death in scripture is not a cessation of existence. Um, it is a um, departure from uh, one place to another, or it is a separation of body and soul. And so they will argue that death in scripture means separation and physical death. They would say is separation of body from soul. Second death is separation of whole person from God. Now the problem with, or there's, there are numerous problems with that interpretation of the book of revelation where it uses the phrase second death, but all just give one, and, and if we want to dig into this text as the conversation continues, we can. In the time uh, that John wrote the book of Revelation, um, the Hebrew Old Testament had had been um, and was being translated into Aramaic. Um, these, these Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament were called the Targums. And there are a number of places throughout the Targums where the phrase second death is used. And in fact, in some of those places, it's used in the same, in, in conjunction with Gehenna, which of course is the word translated hell here in Matthew 10, 28. And everywhere that phrase second death is used in the Targums, it doesn't refer to some sort of separation. It, it means the resurrected lost will literally die a second time and never live again in the life to come. So when John says that the lake of fire that he sees in his perplexing uh, apocalyptic vision when he says that it represents the second death, um, and it's not just John who does that in 2014, it's also God who does it in Revelation 21.8. What they're telling you is that it is that the lake of fire represents literally the second time that people uh, will die, just as that phrase had been used in the Targums leading up to the time when John wrote this text. And then, like I said, there are many other reasons for understanding it that way here in the book of Revelation. Right on, right on. And, and thank you, Chris. See, that's why I, I really appreciate you, because you have put in the time, you've put in the effort to actually understand, and, and you said you, you believed eternal conscious torment there for a little while, right? Well, for almost 10 years, yeah. It's for 10 years. So, and then, so I guess, let me ask you a personal question real quick. What was the, where was the change at? Do you remember a definitive moment in which you were just, uh, you know, I, I can't accept this anymore. I, I see, you know, conditional immortality and I'm making the switch from this to that. Where, do you remember a point in your life when that happened, or was there was there uh, was that a process? Well, it was it was a process, but there were a few significant points along that process, and I'll just mention those briefly. The first was when I was talking to a friend of mine um, named Glenn Peoples. He is a prominent Christian philosopher um, headquartered in New Zealand, um, and we were um, I was not I, I was a believer in eternal torment at the time, but he already held to the view I have now. And online, we got into this discussion about hell, and I asked him, "Well, what about where Jesus says their worm will not die and their fire will, fire will not be?" quenched in Mark 948. Um, you see, um, I, I just sort of did what every other believer in eternal torment does when they come across that text. They they somehow take that wording to mean the fire will never die out, which yeah. means it will forever have fuel to fuel the fire. That's not what the text says, but that but we can hold that for another point in time in the discussion. Mm -hmm. But what, what my friend Glenn Peoples pointed me to was what Jesus is quoting, which is Isaiah 60, uh, Isaiah 66, 24, where Isaiah explicitly says that what is being consumed by fire and worms are corpses. They're not living people experiencing pain. They're dead corpses being eaten up by maggots and fire. Um, so that was what first got me wondering, hmm, <laughs> how did I miss this? I, I wonder, I wonder what's going on here. Sure. Now, 
there was a process of a, maybe, maybe eight months or so that began with that. And, and what finally tipped me over into fully accepting this view, and, and there's a lot of other points along the process I could mention, but the thing that, that convinced me most was that with virtually no exception, every single proof text um, historically cited in support of eternal torment, I discovered, uh, I discovered that it proves upon closer examination to be better support for the view I hold now. So whether we're talking the eternal fire and eternal punishment in Matthew 25, or we're talking the worm that won't die and fire that won't be quenched of, uh, in Mark 9, or eternal destruction in Second Thessalonians 1.9, um, the, the smoke of their torment rising up forever in Revelation 14, all of these texts sound on the surface to somebody who is raised in the traditional view. It, they sound like they teach the doctrine of eternal torment, but all you got to do is dig a little bit under the surface and you discover, oh wait, <laughs> not only do these not teach eternal torment, they're actually positive support for conditional immortality and annihilationism. And so when I realized that, and I realized that there's literally no biblical leg for the traditional view to stand on, I, I had to let it go, even though I desperately wanted to and still want to be a believer in the doctrine of eternal torment. Sure. Wow. That, uh, so real quick, I, I want to go to Second Peter 2, um, 4 through 6. And, and <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's funny you both have done it now. You both have brought up text that I was going to get to, but uh, haven't haven't got to yet. And I think it's just hilarious. So, but the reason I'm bringing this text up is because actually Peter uses the exact same analogy that Noah did just a few minutes ago. He said something about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And lo and behold, Peter has that same exact mindset going on. So let's read that. Um, now this is from the NET. So it says, "For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell." Now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but is this Tartarus? Yeah, it's actually a verb, tartarao, but it's a, but yes, it's a reference not to hell, the place of final punishment, but rather the the place where some Jews um, and 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 Greeks thought that divine beings, in, in the case of Jews, it was angels, in the case of the Greeks, it was like demigods or whatever. These sure. divine beings were were locked up in a cell, you know, for for a long time. It, it's not the place of final punishment. Okay, so this is like Enochian, um, right? Okay, gotcha. That's that's a good con uh, good conversation, uh, I think. But anyway, anyway. So, and lock them up in uh, chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood on an ungodly world, and if he turned to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, when he condemned them to destruction having appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly. So now on a surface level here, it seems like he could be talking about cities or even nations being destroyed for openly sinning, kind of like the United States is doing right now. Um, <laughs> so is, is, there, is there some, you know, obviously a given to that, or is this more spiritual? Is this talking about, you know, could it be spiritualized in the eternal um conscious torment or annihilation perspective like is that in here chris or is this just talking about cities or nations no it's definitely talking about individuals um god doesn't condemn uh unconscious entities to anything right he, sure. he condemns people who do things to things and in this case what he condemned the people of sodom and gomorrah to was uh ex extinction being brought you know reduced to ashes um now, what defenders of eternal torment will typically say is that, yes, that's what this means, but what they will um, try to argue means something else is the parallel. Um, you see, Second Second uh, Peter 2, 6 here is um, drawing upon a same uh, the same tradition that Jude is drawing upon in Jude 7, where he says that Sodom and Gomorrah, um, were, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Hmm. Um, so... Because they're parallel and because the the tradition, the Jewish tradition upon which they are drawing um, lifts up the historical destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah's people by fire, we know that both Jude and Peter drawing upon that tradition um, are, are, are 
are doing the same thing. They're saying that the historical destruction by fire of Sodom and Gomorrah um, is an example of what awaits the ungodly. Uh, that seems really clear, and that that's one reason why we know the phrase eternal fire doesn't support the doctrine of eternal torment. But what defenders of eternal torment will sometimes do with Jude, they can't do this with Second Peter, but they what they try to do in Jude is say that what it's a reference to is not the historical destruction by fire of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, but rather it's describing their ongoing torment in in the intermediate state, um, the kind of fire that we read about in the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. Really? Um, huh. Yeah. So, so okay. they would say that, yes, Peter has in mind their destruction by fire, but Jude has in mind when he uses the phrase eternal fire, something that has been gone ongoing for thousands of years and is still ongoing in the underworld, in the intermediate state, and saying that is an example of the eternal torment awaiting the wicked in hell. Huh. Very interesting. So, okay, let me ask this then. That I think it brings up a good point. Do since Peter was talking about angels, and since Jude seems to have read Enoch, maybe, um, and we know we we know whenever we talk about Genesis six, the sons of God, we know what what conversation is going to come up. So <laughs> let me ask this then: Do you believe that angels are obviously going to be punished um, with humans in 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 this lake of fire? Well, just to be clear, I think the lake yeah. of fire is a symbol and a vision. Um, it represents the place and fact of final punishment. So I don't think anybody's going to be actually thrown into a lake of fire. But to but I think the question you're asking is, do I think that the, the the devil and his angels will experience the same kind of punishment that I think the wicked, the unsaved lost will, namely annihilation? And yeah. yes, I do think that's the case, and I think that's borne out in the text. And so, for example, you've got Psalm 82, I think it is, in which um, God is depicted as be, being before these uh, divine, uh, these divine beings, not gods themselves, but like angelic beings. And he says, um, you're going to die like men. And then in the book of Revelation right. in chapter 20, it's not just resurrected human beings that are thrown into that lake of fire, which is interpreted as meaning the second death. It's also death and Hades themselves. And death and Hades in the book of Revelation are depicted as conscious beings. They're, they're the last horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6. Right. Um, and here they're emptied of their dead and then thrown into the lake of fire. And the question is, what does that mean? Well, um, God goes on to say in Revelation 21, 4, death shall be no more, which is the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the lake of fire symbolism um, is destruction. It destroys human beings thrown into it. It, destroy, it destroys death itself. You know, once the resurrected saved are made immortal and nobody ever dies again, death will have been defeated. It'll have been destroyed. And so if the lake of fire symbolism means that for human beings and for death in Hades, I see no reason for thinking that the imagery means something different for the devil and his angels. Okay. So I, I do want to dig into Revelation 27 through 10 um, real yeah. quick, just to kind of get your perspective on this. So let me read it, and then Chris, if you would like to comment. Noah, do you got anything? I mean, you've been kind of quiet. Yeah, this I'm, time, I'm, I'm, just enjoying, no, I'm just enjoying okay. the conversation. Okay. Okay, just making sure. Um, if you want to jump in, obviously, man, go for it. You know that. Um, so, all right, Revelation 20, 7 through 10, it says, Now when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to bring them together for the battle. They are as numerous as the grains of sand in the sea. They went up on the broad plain of the earth and encircled the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them completely. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are too. And they will be tormented there day and night forever. So now, if we're going back a little bit, it says that the beast and the false prophet were thrown into this place, whatever it is, whether it's symbolic. It seems like they're there together in a place um, a thousand years earlier. Now, whether that thousand years is a really long time or whatever, um, th there's some kind of time separation there. And it seems like where they are, they're still there being tormented, um, and, and the devil joins them. So can you kind of give us, what's your comments on this, Chris? Um, obviously, you don't take this literally, or, or do you? 
No, no, I don't take it literally. There's, okay. There'd be no reason to. You know, um, we sometimes think of Revelation as if it's unique in Scripture, but it's not. This kind of visionary experience goes back at the very least to the time when Joseph is sent to prison because he is, um, he, he's, uh, Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph and says Joseph tried to sexually assault her. So Potiphar sends Joseph to prison, and in prison he interprets these, uh, the, the pharaohs, cupbakers, and, 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 uh, and, and, um, bakers the cupbearers and bakers dreams and then he interprets pharaoh's dream when he's taken out of prison and this is really famous in in the dream that pharaoh has seven healthy cows come up out of the nile and then seven sick cows come up out of the nile and eat the first seven Mm -hmm. and nobody who takes revelation literally thinks that what pharaoh was foreseeing is that there would be a literal you know seven cows that come up and literally eat the first ones right right so this is so this kind of visionary experience is nothing new in Revelation. So I definitely don't take it literally, but I do wholeheartedly acknowledge that what John sees in the vision is a process of ongoing torment that in the vision is not ever, not ever ending. Um, so I'm not denying that in the vision John sees, he sees eternal torment. Um, the question, though, that we have to ask ourselves as interpreters of God's word is, what does that symbolism mean? And in the case of the, uh, the beast, this is really... Um, uh, informative and illustrative, John is not coming up with this beast imagery himself. Um, this imagery stretches as far back to the visions of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 7, I think it is, Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And if you compare those four beasts, their appearance, the things they do, to the beast of Revelation, you see that the beast of Revelation is the culmination of those four beasts. Um, it's, it's, it's widely recognized that, they're, that John is drawn upon, or at least his vision is drawing upon that vision in Daniel. Um, And in Daniel, the fiery fate of the beast, the fourth beast, is different than the fiery fate of the beast here in Revelation. Here in Revelation, he's thrown alive into the lake of fire where he's tormented forever. But in Daniel's vision, the, the fourth beast is killed and his lifeless body is thrown into a stream of fire where it's consumed. And um, if we want to, if we're, if we're going to treat this, the interpretation of these visions as consistent with one another, um, then we have to, we can accept that the visions themselves depict different things because they're, um, they're depicting not the literal realities, but they're symbolizing what will happen in reality. So they can depict different things, but what does the underlying reality pointed to by these symbols, what is, what is that? And Daniel's angel tells Daniel what the beast's fate in the fire represents. He says it represents the um, destruction, the annihilation, the NASB says, of the kingdom or the dominion represented by that fourth beast. So this picture of the beast being thrown into the lake of fire and being tormented forever and ever um, is likewise symbolism. It's different symbolism from Dan, uh, Daniel's dream, but it's but it points to the same reality, which is that the institution represented by this beast will be destroyed. It will it, it will lose its power. So um, so I think the same is true of the devil and the false prophet here. They're being tor- tormented forever in the lake of fire. Represent forever represents symbolizes the destruction of the devil and his angels, the destruction of the oppressive institution symbolized by the beast, and so forth. So let me ask this then real quick. If somebody, say somebody doesn't read this symbolically, or or let me put it like this. Does it come down to your view that comes out of this, just, just this text, Revelation 27 through 10? Granted, we have to take the entire Bible and see what it says. But if someone were to read this with not or without a spiritual hermeneutic uh, to it, do you think that they would ever come to a conditional immortality view? Or would they, or go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to answer that question. But before I do, I just want to um, voice a, a little bit of an objection to the phrase spiritual hermeneutic or spiritualizing hermeneutic. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not spiritualizing anything. I'm, I'm, I'm treating this in, in a very careful way that all of Scripture does when it treats this kind of visionary experience. But I understand your point. Um, right. To answer your question, no, somebody can hold to a much more wooden um, reading of this text, one that, for example, would support a dispensational um, premillennialism, for example, and yet still think that conditional immortality is true. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of an author named, oh man, why can't I remember his name? Um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll have to dig it up for you here in a moment. Yep. Uh, but while I'm digging it up, I'll explain. He, the, the author I have in mind is a dispensational premillennial, premillennialist. Um, and he's open to the possibility that this language of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet um, being tormented forever in the lake of fire is indeed literal or literalistic. But even then, it's only describing um, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. So okay. you, you, there are some conditionalists who Robert Taylor is the name of the author, by the way, that I was thinking of. He's got a book okay. called Rescue from Death and people can check that out. But but he would say and, and other conditionalists would say that the devil, the beast and the false prophet suffer eternal torment because they're a different kind of creature. They're a purely spiritual, immaterial creature, whereas human beings are uh, body and soul and they bear the divine image and so forth. And there's no reason, therefore, to think that they have to suffer the same exact punishment that the devil and his angels do. Sure. I mean, no, after I, all, after mm -hmm. all, this imagery never says that the that the lost um, are tormented forever and ever. Now, I think they are in the vision because I think it's consistent. But somebody could say that the fact that the vision doesn't describe their eternal torment leaves open the possibility that it's only these demonic beings who are tormented forever and ever. Right. Sure. And no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, sometimes I kind of speak a little be without thinking uh <laughs> um, <laughs> That's right. yeah yeah no but you uh, and i'm glad you understand what i mean uh, man i'm telling you i think if i'm not mistaken Noah, and you know it can correct me if i'm wrong on this but you are definitely one of the more educated people that we've had on um i, I and i'm talking about in i mean you're a teacher at trinity seminary now in evansville indiana which i only live 45 minutes away so that's pretty cool hey, tell us real quick just a little bit about that how did that kind of um how, how did the ball start rolling on that? Because, I, I mean, I've talked to Braxton a couple times um, over Facebook, but he's the president of Trinity Seminary, correct? Yep. Okay. So how did that get rolling? Um, just kind of like a little interlude. Yeah, um, at our last conference, so we, we've been doing annual conferences at Rethinking Hill um, since 2014. Um, we've been in Houston, Pasadena, London, Auckland, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. And then last year, we had our conference in Enid, Oklahoma. And when we were looking for, at all, at most of our conferences, we try to get believers in eternal torment to come and be speakers as well, because we really think that theology should be done in community, not just as isolated individuals. And um, we when we, when we were looking for uh, believers in eternal torment to come and speak, one suggestion was to have the vice president of academics at Trinity, his name is Jonathan Pritchett, come and present. And we invited him. And, and what he said is, you know, I'd actually love to present uh, in defense of, of being on the fence. Um, JP, which is what um, Jonathan Pritchett's friends know him by, uh, that and other things like Prime. Anyway, he, he would say that um, uh, he is on the fence. Um, unconvinced of either the doctrine of eternal torment or conditional immortality. Um, and he came and he spoke at that conference. And in the process of getting him to come to the conference, I've, I started to develop a friendship with Braxton and with Jonathan. And then um, uh, just this month, where, you know, it's, it's June 29th, and, and just earlier this month, I finished my last classes um, at Fuller Theological Seminary, um, and, I, and I graduated with my Master of Arts in Theology. And what I, you know, I, people who know me know that my dream is one day to teach at seminary as a full-time professor, um, and I didn't think that I'd be able to do that until I earned my uh, doctorate. And it's true that I still probably can't teach um, master's students uh, until I earn my doctorate, which I do intend to do. But I learned that in the meantime, I can, if a school hires master's graduates to teach their undergraduates, then that's something I could do as an adjunct or part-time professor. And so I reached out to Jonathan Pritchett and Braxton Hunter, and I said, hey, does Trinity hire master's um, graduates to teach their undergrads as adjunct professors? And they said, yeah, we'd be great. We'd love to have have you um and so you know that's that's what we've what we've decided upon is that i'll teach undergrad hebrew and greek and a few other classes um and i'm super excited to get started at that i think we're going to make the official announcement sometime this week that's awesome man i congratulations on that too by the way thank you it's it's a it's big it's a dream coming true you know absolutely let me uh, let me see if we can shift here for just a second. You know, the truth is, Chris, uh, we have interviewed a lot of people on the show, and I, I would like to echo what Tyler has said. Um, you know, you clearly have done a tremendous amount of studying of your Bible and and a, and a tremendous amount of reflection, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gained 
um, from what you've learned. And I, I know I, I would like to learn that. With the, with the couple minutes that we have uh, as we wind down the program today, can you talk a little bit about where your personal passion is? I mean, we invited you to talk about this, and this is great. Um, where are your personal passion? What things are you interested in? What things are you studying and what things do you think, from a biblical theology standpoint, people are that that you've discovered or learned in your Bible that that maybe other people aren't paying attention to? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, a few things. So, first of all, um, I want to do my PhD in Old Testament biblical studies. Um, I think that much of the church uh, has sort of a uh, half a Bible. And actually, if you consider the, the the size of the New Testament relative to the size of the old, it's more like they've got about a fifth of a Bible, right? Um, sometimes <laughs> the cr- Christians will have a New Testament and like Psalms, but there's a whole big rest of the Old Testament. And um, understanding the New Testament can only be done so far to a certain degree uh, without an understanding of the Old Testament. And so I'd love to see um, more Christians spend more time reading and understanding their Old Testaments uh, and how um, and how that informs the New Testament when it alludes or quotes, uh, alludes to or quotes the Old Testament. So that's one thing. I think people need, need to um, pay more attention to their Old Testaments. Um, in terms of specific theological issues, um, besides this issue of hell, um, the the larger category of eschatology, um, which includes like the timing of the end times, you know, the beast, the false prophet, 666, all these kinds of things. I think there are a lot of people, and this included myself um, for the first few years of my faith, who just sort of accept popular views of the end times, the kinds of things you read about and left behind and other things. Um, and, and we accept really surface level readings of biblical texts that upon closer examination just don't support those views. Uh, and so, for example, I'm what's known as a partial preterist, although I, I hate that language. I prefer to just call myself a preterist, and we could talk about that sometime. Um, but it, it, it's, it, it thinks that most biblical prophecy was fulfilled in the past, and I think that this is the consistent way to um, read Old and New Testaments. Um, of course, the resurrection from the dead and Jesus' return, those things are in our future. But uh, but anyway, my point is just to say there's so much there are so many more views in the in the area of eschatology that a lot of Christians aren't even familiar with, let alone know why they don't believe. And so I would encourage Christians to spend a little bit more time carefully studying what the Bible has to say about eschatology and expose themselves to more views than just Hal Lindsey and and, and Tommy Ice, the, the kinds of left behind people that they're probably familiar with. Um and then the other, the other two areas I'll mention in much more pass, much more briefly, are areas of soteriology and Christology. So in the area of soteriolo- soteriology, you know, I I became a Christian without any exposure to Christian theology and just sort of embraced libertarian free will, Arminianism, stuff like that. And I'm not here to tell people they shouldn't be that, but I am here. But I do want to say. The, the other views in the debate, including reform doctrine, Calvinism, um, are deserving of more attention than some people are willing to give it. And, and there are a lot of views that should be taken seriously and, and tested in light of scripture that a lot of Christians just don't even think about. Uh, and then in the area of Christology, this is really um, important. Most Christians today, not counting the pastors and, and professors and things, but most lay Christians today, I don't think can really do um, a, a decent job articulating the Trinity and the deity of Christ, let alone defending it from Scripture and answering objections from uh, critics of Trinitarianism. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I said this in my rebuttal in a Two Views debate book I recently published with Unitarian Dale Duggy. I said, Dale Tuggy, I said, yeah, I can understand why somebody would feel unequipped to address challenges from Unitarians because most of us are unequipped. And so I would encourage Christians to spend some time, uh, invest some time reading what the scriptures say and what um, scholars have to say about how the Bible um, depicts the threeness and oneness of God and defends the deity of Christ so that they can defend those things um, when they are challenged on them by Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses and other such groups. You know, I think you're absolutely dead on, Chris, because I know for me, whenever I started to get involved in Christianity, I I only thought of there's Calvinism versus Arminianism, and soteriology is going to be the only thing that we talk about for the next 2,000 years, so that's it, <laughs> you know, and I genuinely thought that, like, okay, this is where the action's at. Well, once I figured, you know, kind of if I did five years of that, it's like, well, now where do you go? 
And so, yeah, no, I agree. I think doing these, both of these interviews with you, man, that has definitely got me motivated to study more eschatology. Because to be honest, dude, whenever me and Noah were kind of talking back and forth, and it's like we're peewees, you know what I'm saying? It's like you know, you have all of this information, and I'm so thankful um, that you uh, came on. And and I mean, just I, I'm blessed, dude. Like I really appreciate it. I'm speechless. <laughs> Chris, can we uh, can we hear a little bit about your podcast and some of the places that people like what they're hearing? Where can they go to get more of Chris? Well, to get more of me personally, they can go to my Amazon authors page. It's just amazon.com slash author slash Chris date. They can find two books that I've gotten published on this issue of hell. And they can also find a book I've got published on Calvinism and a book I've got published on um, the deity of Christ. They can also find my academia profile. Um, if, if they go to fuller.academia.edu slash Christopher date, they can find the journal articles that I've gotten published. Um, they can just befriend me on facebook uh, i'm super easy to find uh, i think it's just facebook slash chris date um and i'm also on twitter uh, my handle is date chris because there's another famous chris date and that person probably <laughs> has the chris date handle um but finally i would just encourage people to check out the resources available um, at rethinkinghell.com um, and in our rethinking hell youtube channel we we about uh 40 weeks ago started a weekly um, youtube live stream mondays at 6 p.m pacific and if people go to re- uh, youtube.com slash rethinking hell, um, they can find the past episodes of that. And that's a resource that they'd probably find very useful as well. And we've got a podcast. If you go to iTunes and search for rethinking hell or whatever, whatever, you'll find it. Um, so, yeah, those would be some sources they could turn to. Chris, with just a last minute, uh, I want to I ask you one last question. Um, to summarize our conversation today, can you, can you help people understand in, in 30 seconds or less, correlate the God from the Old Testament with the loving, uh, forgiving nature of the God in the New Testament? How can people kind of square that? Uh, well, I, here's one option. I think there's a number of ways that this could be done, but I would just point to Genesis 3. You know, after Adam and Eve sin, um, they realize they're naked and they try to cover themselves with um, skin, with, with with fig leaves. They try to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. God doesn't, uh, doesn't allow that. He provides them with animal skins. Um, but those animal skins came from somewhere. Uh, ancient Israel's readers would, would have recognized here sort of a proto-substitutionary sacrifice. This very first book of the Bible, the very, almost all the way at the beginning of their Bible, God is already providing a sacrifice to cover people's sins. And it's because he covers them with uh, the, the skin of this animal sacrifice that he, that they are then not killed, to, you know, um, paid the death penalty that they had merited by sinning. Um, and that's what you know, it, it's because of that original act of mercy and of grace that we even have a human race today, that, that any of us are alive to experience anything today. So that's a very early example. And of course, that prefigured the substitutionary atoning work of Christ, who is God incarnate himself um, on the cross. And so that to me seems like a really good tie together between Old and New Testament when it comes to the grace of God. Yeah, I definitely think it's a both and we have a loving, forgiving God. I mean, that's how he reveals himself in scripture. But we also have a just God who is a holy God who hates sin. And we thank God we have we have been given um, forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ who came down 2000 years ago to die for every single person who would believe in him and who would trust him um, and, and then rose from the dead to prove that. Uh, Chris, I want to thank you for coming on again and and doing this, man. We're going to have to have you back um, because this has just been mind-blowing to me. Again, I'm still speechless because I want to just dive into eschatology right now, (laughs) like head first, dude. Um, Noah, do you got any uh, last remarks? Nope, and the music means we're out of time, so that actually worked perfectly. Hey, guys, thanks for hanging with us. We appreciate having you. We'll We'll be back next week. Make sure to check out the website, completedcenters.com. 